Today is the 26th and last Sunday after Pentecost. Uh, You'll find it in your missals under the 24th and last Sunday after Pentecost. The epistle for the last Sunday after Pentecost is taken from St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1. Brethren, we cease not to pray for you and to beg that you may be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of God in all things pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to the power of his glory, in all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to God the Father, who hath made us worthy to be partakers of the lot of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission of sins. And the Holy Gospel. is taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 24. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, When you shall see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, He that readeth, let him understand. Then they that are in Judea, let them flee to the mountains. And he that is on the housetop, let him not come down to take anything out of his house. And he that is in the field, let him not go back to take his coat. And woe to them that are with child and that nurse in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there shall be then great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now neither shall be. And unless those days had been shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, do not believe him. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told it to you beforehand, If therefore they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the desert, go ye not out. Behold, he is in the closets, believe it not. For as lightning cometh out of the east, and appeareth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Wheresoever the body shall be, there shall the eagles also be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, And the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be moved. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with much power and majesty. And he shall send his angels with a trumpet and a great voice, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest parts of the heavens, the utmost bounds of them. And from the fig tree learn a parable. When the branch thereof is now tender, and the leaves come forth, you know that summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see all these things, know ye that it is nigh, even at the doors. Amen, I say to you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass, but my words shall not pass. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel.
And because iniquity hath abounded, the charity of many shall grow cold. These words are taken from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 24. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear friends, according to a certain tradition, towards the end of his life, St. John the Apostle was not really able to walk. And it was even difficult for him to stand for long periods of time and to give discourses to his people. But still, he wanted to address at least a few words to them from time to time as his health and strength would allow. And so he would often ask some of his disciples to carry him on a stretcher into the church. Each time his disciples would carry him on the stretcher, they'd bring him into the church, down the aisle, and they'd set him down in the front. And each time St. John would lean up on one elbow and he would say the exact same three words. Little children, he would say, love one another. Love one another. He would then lie back down. His disciples would pick him up and they'd carry him out. Every week, the exact same thing happened. And every week, it was the same short sermon, exactly the same message. Little children love one another. So at length, the people grew tired of hearing the exact same thing over and over again. And so one day, one of his disciples mustered up enough courage to say something to St. John about it. Master, he said, why do you always say the same thing? Little children love one another. It's as though the disciple were saying, is there nothing else? Is there no other advice you can give us? No other words of encouragement than this. Love one another. St. John no doubt looked on the man with a fatherly kindness and gave him an answer that was short, simple, and to the point. He said, I tell you over and over again to love one another because this is the commandment of the Lord. And if it is observed, then it is enough. Since the dawn of Christianity, the undying characteristic of all who would follow Christ has been charity. Our divine Savior said to his apostles at the Last Supper, and he says to all of us, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, our Lord said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And thus it was, according to certain church historians, that in the early days of Christianity, one could identify a Christian by the charitable way he treated his neighbor, both friend and enemy. That's how seriously the Christians of the early centuries took this commandment of our Lord to practice charity. It's even said by some that in times of persecution, when Christians went into hiding, the 
went undercover, so to speak. It's said by some that the Roman authorities would insult those whom they believed to be Christians. And then they waited to see if the person would retaliate or if they would bear it with charity and meekness. If they did not retaliate, if they did not insult back or return a response with anger, but rather with charity and meekness, the Roman authorities would take that person in for further questioning on the suspicion that he was a Christian. These early Christians then, many of whom in the end died for the sake of Christ, they were martyrs not only for the faith, but they were in a certain sense martyrs for the virtue of charity. Would that Catholic people today had such charity? Would that they had such a great love for God and for neighbor? Yet it is sad to say, but all too true, over the centuries, the charity of men has grown cold. The charity of men in the world, yes, but so too has the charity of Catholic people. It's grown cold. In today's gospel, we read portions of the 24th chapter of St. Matthew's gospel. In this entire chapter of the gospel, from verse 1 to verse 51, St. Matthew records two prophecies that our Lord revealed. The prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the prophecy of the events that will precede the end of the world. The prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem was accomplished almost 2,000 years ago in 70 A.D. But the prophecy of the end of the world, that is still to come. And even though we don't know when the world will end, certain signs have been recorded in sacred scripture which will precede the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. Some of the signs are the preaching of the gospel throughout the whole world, the great falling away from the faith, which is also called the great apostasy. The coming of the Antichrist, referred to by St. Paul as the man of sin and the son of perdition. And severe tribulations, wars, famines, earthquakes, disease, and violent persecutions of the faithful. These signs, my dear friends, according to theologians, are among the principal signs that will precede the end of the world. But in addition to these, there are still others mentioned by our Lord. And one of these other signs that will occur in the latter days is the loss of charity in the world. Because iniquity hath abounded, Christ said, the charity of many will grow cold. In other words, because wickedness would flourish in this world, the charity of many will grow cold. And is this not what we're seeing in the world today? A manifest lack of charity. A world devoid of love for God. A world bereft of love for neighbor. I mean, over the past several years alone, has not the number of senseless murders and violence drastically increased? How many people today, especially young people, 
have little or no respect for their parents or their fellow man? And how many even lack common courtesy? How much gossip, slander, and calumny is there today? How many instances are there of anger, hatred, and revenge? An utter absence of charity, compassion, and forgiveness. The charity of men has grown cold. It's grown cold. Yes, there's always been a certain lack of charity in the world, but as the world approaches its end, and the events prophesied by our Lord begin to unfold, that lack of charity will reach an unprecedented degree. And as one author states, it will include those who have the one true faith and even those of the same household and family. Our Lord foretold this. He said, And the brother shall betray his brother unto death, And the father, his son, and children shall rise up against the parents and shall work their death. My dear friends, to live in these times demands no small amount of courage. It's true. But to live in these times demands something else. To live in these times demands no small amount of charity. We are not immune to the coldness of charity that has enveloped the world today. And so we must be on guard against it. We must protect our families against it. And we must guard especially against a coldness that manifests itself in three ways. And these three ways are criticism, contempt, and defensiveness. One author defines criticism as the expression of disapproval of someone or something based on faults or mistakes, whether these faults or mistakes are real or perceived. It's not simply offering a critique or voicing a complaint. It's an attack. It's an attack on another person's character or personality. Basically, when you criticize You frame your complaints as though there's something defective in that other person. For example, a complaint is, I'm disappointed that you didn't do this or that. That's a complaint. But a criticism, a criticism is this. I can't believe you didn't do that. You're so lazy. It's not just a complaint. You see, it's an attack on that person's character. You're so lazy. If criticism is not guarded against, my dear friends, it will lead to animosity. And that, in turn, will turn to contempt if it's not stopped. Contempt is defined as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, is worthless, or is deserving of scorn. When a person has contempt for another, he is really mean-spirited. Contempt is shown by treating others with disrespect, 
mocking them with sarcasm or sharp words, ridiculing them, calling them names, mimicking them to scorn, and using body language such as rolling the eyes or scoffing at them. Contempt is used to make others feel despised and worthless, and at times even to boost one's own ego by putting others down. It expresses the complete absence of any admiration or respect. And it is very dangerous to our well-being and to the well-being of our families. We must therefore guard against it because it's not impossible that it could creep in and take hold of us. And finally, we have to guard against defensiveness. We can be defensive in one of two ways. We can be defensive either actively or passively. We are actively defensive when we expressly defend ourselves. And we are passively defensive when we don't expressly defend ourselves. But we do so by our silence. Defensiveness is a natural reaction to being criticized or treated contemptuously. Basically, when we're attacked or treated coldly, we feel either the need to respond sharply or coldly, or the need to defend ourselves by giving the so-called silent treatment, by avoiding eye contact, not speaking with the person, evading him, or in some cases, even locking oneself away to avoid interaction. Defensiveness is harmful to charity, and it is very often the cause of division in families. Criticism, contempt, and defensiveness, we have to guard against these things, my dear friends. Disagreements will happen. Frustration will happen misunderstandings will happen. But we can't let this coldness take hold of our hearts. And we do this, we guard against this coldness by the practice of kindness. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, St. Paul says, charity is kind. And kindness is directly opposed to coldness. But it's more than just being nice. Kindness does not just mean, oh, so-and-so is nice. It's more than being just pleasant and agreeable. Kindness means we think, we will, and we do good for others. We can even sum up kindness in words like St. Paul's about charity. We can say, kindness is excusing, is forgiving. Kindness despiseth not, Getteth not defensive. And so what does that mean? Kindness means that instead of criticizing someone for a failure, instead of attacking him, we make an excuse for him. Going back to the example of criticism, I can't believe you didn't do this or that. You're so lazy. The kind response well, maybe he wasn't able to do it because he didn't have time. Maybe something came up that 
I don't know about. Maybe he just doesn't know how to do it. Instead of criticizing, kindness always seeks to excuse others. Even if we think their faults are inexcusable, it always seeks to excuse. Kindness also keeps contempt in check. For if we are truly kind-hearted, we treat others, especially our family members, with respect. We don't mock them. We don't speak sarcastically to them. We don't ridicule them. Name-calling has no place in our hearts, and we don't scoff others. Instead, we make efforts to overlook, or at least to patiently bear with the faults and failings of others. We look for their good qualities. We refuse to hold grudges, and we forgive if we're offended in some way. And finally, we don't get defensive. We don't get defensive when we're criticized. We don't get defensive when we're rebuked or corrected. If we are the subject of criticism or contempt or whatever, instead of getting defensive, instead of going silent, let's try to take some of the responsibility, even if we're not entirely at fault. And when we are at fault, Instead of getting defensive, simply acknowledge the fault, apologize, and move on. This isn't always easy, but it goes a long way to warding off coldness. It goes a long way in de-escalating certain situations. And in families, it goes a long way in preserving the unity of a family. My dear friend, St. John the Apostle walked with Christ on this earth. He lived at a time in which heresy attacked the faith. He lived during times of persecution. And he saw, by way of special vision granted by God, the events that would precede the end of the world, which he recorded in the Apocalypse. But in spite of all this, the only advice he gave his people his only words of encouragement, his only words to prepare them for what was to come was this. Little children love one another. And these words are just important for us in our time as they were for the faithful in his. May we ever strive then to ward off the spirit of coldness by the practice of kindness, that we may live these words of St. John in our lives. Because this, he said, this is the commandment of the Lord, and if it is observed, it is enough. God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.